Um, so the kinds of questions that I'm interested in have to do with the feelings that come up in our closest social relationships. And I've been on both sides of this equation, so the negative side and the positive side. And I've been very curious about both the painful feelings that we have when we lose our closest social relationships or we feel disconnected from others, as well as the pleasurable feelings that we have when we feel close and connected to those that we love. So one of the things that we've been exploring is where those feelings come from. And one way that we've been doing this is by turning to the brain to try to understand those feelings of social closeness or social distance. Um, we started off um, on the negative side. So I started off with this question of, you know, why do people talk about feeling hurt by social rejection? Why do they talk about the pain that comes up when they feel left out or excluded? Um, and I think it's a very palpable experience. I think that most people, you know, if you ask them to think back to some uh, very painful event in their life, you know, instead of bringing up something that involves a broken bone, they'll oftentimes bring up an experience that involves losing a social relationship or being rejected. You know, we all have these memories of being left out on the school playground or fears of being left out on the school playground. So I was very curious, where do those fears and where do those feelings come from? Um, and so to explore this, we essentially created a setting, created a situation that we could expose our subjects to, to see um, what's going on emotionally when people feel rejected, and then what's going on in their brains when they experience this state. Um, what we did in this first study is we brought people in um, to the fMRI scanner and we put them in there and had them play this virtual ball tossing game with um, two other supposed subjects. So they thought they were playing this interactive game together. Uh, turns out they weren't actually playing with two other people, but they didn't know this yet. And what happened during this game is that these two computer players uh, stopped throwing the ball to our subjects. So we could look at the brain and see what's going on for these individuals, when they, what's going on in their brains when they're being rejected compared to when they're being included in the game. Um, and what we found here was really interesting. We found that some of the same regions of the brain that process the painful experience, the distressing component of physical pain, are the same regions that seem to activate when people feel socially excluded. So it gives some weight to this idea that rejection really can be painful. The same regions that process the unpleasantness of physical pain process the pain of social exclusion. Um, and this sort of got us thinking about this overlap, um, this possible shared circuitry, neural circuitry, underlying physical and social pain. So maybe the same regions that process physical pain have been borrowed over the course of our evolutionary history to process social pain. And when you think about us as a social species, this actually makes quite a lot of sense. We rely on people, we need close others, especially early on for protection, for care, for nourishment. And so to the extent that being separated from a caregiver or from a close other is such a threat to our survival, then actually feeling this pain signal when we're separated may be an adaptive way to prevent being socially separated. Um, and so we've gone on to explore some of this shared circuitry. Um, we've tested a few ideas that come from it. One idea is that you know if physical pain and social pain really rely on some of the same neural regions, 
then one consequence of this is that people who tend to be more sensitive to physical pain should also tend to be more sensitive to social pain. And we've been able to show this in a few studies. So we found that people, you know, just subjects who at baseline are naturally more sensitive to physical pain, they're the ones who later on report feeling more rejected by the same virtual ball tossing game where they get excluded. Um, we've also seen some genetic evidence for this. So we find that people who carry the more rare version of the mu opioid gene, um, which is linked to a greater sensitivity to physical pain, opioids are involved, opioids are potent painkillers. Um, so these individuals who have a genetic sensitivity to be more sensitive to physical pain, they're the same individuals who report feeling more upset by social rejection, um, and they show greater pain-related neural activity in response to social exclusion. Um, a, a second consequence of this overlap that we've been exploring is whether certain factors that alter one kind of pain can alter the other in a similar manner. And I think probably one of the most interesting studies we've done is one where we looked at Tylenol. Um, Tylenol we typically think of as a physical painkiller. Um, in this particular study, we randomly assigned people to either take Tylenol every day for two weeks or they took placebo every day for two weeks. Um, and instead of measuring their physical pain, we measured their social pain. So we asked them each evening to rate their hurt feelings. Um, we also then brought them in at the end of a separate study to look at their neural sensitivity to social exclusion. And what we found is that the people who were taking Tylenol actually reported less hurt feelings than people who were taking placebo, and they showed less pain-related activity to social exclusion, just as a function of taking Tylenol. So we see sort of this, um, this, this crossover effect in some ways, this agent Tylenol that's supposed to, I guess it's called acetaminophen, um, if you're not familiar with the brand name, um, which is known to reduce physical pain, also seems to affect social pain. So those are some of the things that we've been looking on the more negative side of social experience. Um, I've also become very interested recently in exploring the positive feelings that come from our social connections. And these have probably been um, the trickiest to really uh, emulate in the scanning environment. Um, you know, it's easy to put somebody into a negative state when they're sort of laying alone. Uh, in a contained structure, it's harder to really get people to feel connected to their close others when they're all alone and in the dark in the fMRI scanner. Um, but in the same way that we've been curious about some of the neural substrates that might have been borrowed to support our experience of social pain, we've also been interested in what neural substrates might have been borrowed to support those pleasurable, those warm feelings that we have when we're feeling connected. One kind of substrate that we've been really interested in are those neural substrates that process temperature. And the reason for that is because a lot of times when we talk about our feelings of closeness or connection, we talk about warmth. So we talk about somebody making us feel warm-hearted, we talk about our warm feelings towards somebody, and so we wondered whether some of, the some of the same mechanisms that process warmth, that lead us to feel sort of pleasantly warm about a physical object are the same mechanisms that lead us to feel warm about somebody else. 
Um, and so in one study, we um, brought people into the scanner, and we wanted, again, to look at overlapping neural activity between physical warmth. So here we had them holding on to one of those warm packs that athletes will use, like, like crack them open and shake them up. Um, it produces uh, warmth in the packet. So we scanned people, and they were holding warm packs and a neutral temperature pack. Um, and then we also scanned them while they were experiencing social warmth. And to do this, we had the participants, family members and friends before the scanning session, write in um, email messages to the participant. So these were sort of loving, um, tender messages that the subject saw for the first time when they were in the fMRI scanner. Um, and we looked at what the brain was doing when subjects were viewing these socially warm images and whether or not it overlapped with what was going on when they were feeling these physically warm packs. What we found, um, first, just in terms of their self-reports, not surprisingly, people felt more warm when they were holding the packs. They also reported feeling more warm when they were reading those nice messages. What was also interesting is that subjects not only reported feeling more connected when they were reading those messages, they also, strangely enough, reported feeling more connected when they were simply holding those warm packs. And the last thing that we saw was neural activity in reward-related regions um, during both tasks, and it turned out that there were um, several regions that showed overlapping neural activity. So some of the same regions that are processing physical warmth and the pleasantness of that sensory experience were the same ones processing the social warmth that people are getting from these um, loving messages. Um, so that's sort of one thing that we're doing. Um, another, I'll just talk about one other line of research on the positive side, um, and that's been, we've been exploring uh, the neural substrates of support giving. Um, and, you know, essentially, there's been a lot of work showing that social relationships are critical for health. Um, most of the time, though, when people sort of ask, why is social support critical for health? They assume that it's because of all the support that we get from others. And less often have people really looked at the support that people give to others. So when you you know, help out a friend, or you take care of somebody, or you offer um, to do a favor for a family member. This is not considered support, really, because it's not helping us. We're doing things for other people. But this actually may be a key ingredient um, helping to explain some of the relationship between social support and better health. And so we've been interested in some of the neural underpinnings of this particular state. Um, and so we ran a study where we brought in couples. Um, and we had the female member of the couple was in the fMRI scanner, and essentially we scanned her brain while she was providing support to her partner. Her partner stood just outside of the fMRI scanner, and on certain trials he received electric shock. And so the female could support him on some trials um, by holding his arm as he went through this experience. So this is a form of, you know, giving support um, to help somebody going through something negative or something painful. What we found in the study, so there's sort of two main findings here. The first is that we saw reward-related activity when people were providing support to somebody else. Some people say, you know, this is not terribly surprising. We all know that something about support giving feels good. Some people might say that seems surprising because we're actually, you know, doing work to help somebody else. But we did see reward-related activity, and we actually saw more more reward-related activity 
when the females were touching their partners when they were getting pain, when they were support giving, compared to when they were just touching their partners and their partners weren't giving pain. So it seems like maybe there was something more rewarding about being able to provide support than just being able to sort of be in physical contact with your partner when they're not going through anything negative. The last really interesting finding, and this is sort of where we've um, been extending our work to, the last interesting finding is that the females who showed more reward-related activity when they were support-giving also were the ones who showed less activity in the amygdala. This is a region, it's involved in a lot of different things, but one of the things that it's involved in is processing threat. Um, so people who showed more reward-related activity when they were support-giving seem to be showing less threat-related activity. And if you look in sort of animal work and if you think about the evolution of this, it makes some sense. And the idea here is that um, to the extent that we're in a caregiving situation, we need to remain calm. And so there may be some circuitry in place that sort of turns down our own threat sensitivity so that we can engage in adaptive caregiving towards others. So there's something, there may be something about caregiving that actually turns down our own internal stress levels so that we can engage and provide adaptive help to others. Um, and so we've been trying to build on this and to look at some of the health consequences of support giving. So is there something about support giving that's actually stress reducing for the person who's giving the support? Not just for the person who's receiving it, which is what's typically been looked at, but for the person who's doing the helping. And so we have some preliminary data showing that when people were writing you know, a, a helpful note to a friend in need, after they do this, they go through a stress task those people that wrote the helpful note as opposed to people who wrote just sort of a control note, they actually showed sort of a calmer physiological profile to the stress task. They were showing less of a heart rate increase, less of a blood pressure increase, just as a function of writing this helpful message to a friend. So that's sort of a lay of the land. Um, so I've always honestly felt a bit like a mutt in terms of the fields that have influenced me. Um, I would call myself now a social neuroscientist, um, but I was trained as a social psychologist um, with probably a large influence from health psychology as well. Um, and so I think sometimes, unlike most social psychologists, I tend to read a lot more animal work. Um, and that's probably from health psychology, which borrows a lot from animal models of disease and how uh, different kinds of social environments can affect health outcomes. Um, and I don't think it's a field, but I think I've been very heavily influenced by people who have studied uh, social relationships from uh, animal models um, I guess as well as human models. So when I think about the people who have really influenced me, it's people like Harry Harlow, uh, people like John Bowlby, people who have really, uh, people like Yak Pengsep, people who have really focused on um, what makes up the glue that binds people together. Um, so you have Harry Harlow looking at, you know, very basic attachment processes, you know, what does the monkey prefer? Does he prefer the food or does he prefer the warmth or the softness? Um, you have people like 
uh, John Bowlby, who's trying to chart out a mechanistic way for understanding um, attachment, a child's attachment to its mother. Um, and then you have people like Pangsep who use animal models to understand basic motivational systems like love, attachment, rage, um, caregiving. So I think I've been very influenced by probably the central theme is people focused on social relationships and not just uh, romantic relationships. And I think there's a whole wing of social psychology that focuses on romantic relationships. And in some ways, I think that's why I never consider myself a relationship researcher is because I'm interested in more than just the romance. I'm interested in the friendships. I'm interested in the parent-child relationships, all of that. Um, and so I think I've been probably more influenced by the folks who studied um, social connection from humans to animals. I think romance is interesting. A lot of people study romance. I think there's a lot of other meaningful relationship types out there that it seems like people are less interested in for some reason. Um, so when I think about like the warm feelings that I have for my employees or my close friends or my son, um, I want to know where those come from. Um, so um, the question is, how do I how do I know what I'm doing makes a difference? Um, and I have two answers. I think there some of my research. Um, makes a difference because it reveals something to people that they probably already knew, but maybe were afraid to believe. So when I think of the work on social pain and showing that some of the same neural regions that are involved in physical pain are involved in social pain, that can be very um, validating for people. Anyone who's felt the, you know, the pain of losing somebody or who's felt the hurt feelings that come from being ostracized or bullied. I think there's something very validating in seeing this scientific work that shows, you know, it's not just in my head. I mean, it, it is in our head because it's in our brain. Um, it's not just in our head that there is something biological going on that's interpreting the pain of social rejection as something that really is a painful experience. So I think, you know, there's some way in which my work is making a difference to people. Um, in terms of the positive side, I haven't yet figured that out. I think there is something just inherently interesting about figuring out how people work, figuring out where these warm feelings come from. Um, and I'm not sure in the end if it will help anyone. I think that line of research is almost, you know, meant to really just understand these things and maybe not meant necessarily to help people in the end. Um, so how do I decide what to do and what drives me as a scientist? Um, you know, again, I think part of what I'm really interested in are these, you know, these feelings that come up in our closest social relationships. Um, and really trying to delve into that to understand the neural substrates of those feelings, you know, that's something that drives me and that shapes the kinds of questions that I ask. Um, I think I, I, was a, I was the kind of person that always wanted to know what they wanted to do, but I never did. And I kind of happened, happened upon science in a way. Um, I met a mentor who was gracious enough to take me on. Um, we did a project together, 
and I found something new. And I think literally it was that excitement of discovering something for the first time that led me to want to be a scientist. Um, and, you know, it still drives me to this day, this moment of like, you know, I'm discovering something new about human experience that we didn't know before. Um, those aha moments, I think that's what really kind of reinforces things. Um, and perhaps that's a selfish reason to pursue science. Um, but, you know, I think for me, that's certainly part of it, that, that feeling of discovering something new. Um, so a little bit about my background. I um, got my uh, Bachelor's of Science at UCLA. I majored in psychobiology. Um, it was there that I got my first taste of research. So I wound up doing an honors thesis uh, with Margaret Kemeny, who's a health psychologist and also a psychoneuroimmunologist. Um, and because of our work together, I think I realized I really wanted to do science. I really wanted to be able to ask questions about human nature, about human experience, and then use the data to answer those questions. Um, after finishing my bachelor's, I went, keep the story short, I went to UCLA and got a PhD there. Um, I worked with uh, Matt Lieberman, with Shelley Taylor, and with Shelley Gable. Um, and I think at the time, you know, when I was sort of in my second or third year of graduate school, I was introduced by Matt Lieberman to this new area of science called social neuroscience. Um, before that, I was probably more of a health psychologist. I was very interested in, you know, why is why are social ties so important for health? And there were all of these fabulous demonstrations of, you know, people who have more friends live longer and they're less likely to get sick. Um, but I always felt like there was something missing with those models. And to me, that was what's going on in the mind that translates the social world into whatever happens downstream in the body. And so I became very interested in social neuroscience as a way to kind of connect that outer social world with the inner workings of the body to try to better understand some of the links between social issues and health. Um, and so I became sort of you know, took whatever classes I could, talked with whoever I could to learn all these techniques of social neuroscience. Um, and it was during that time that um, I, with Matt Lieberman, did the study on social pain, looking at cyberball, looking at people getting excluded in the scanner. Um, and I think my work kind of built from there, continuing to look at that idea that physical and social pain overlap. Um, and then I sort of, in some ways, you know, I veered off to get training in social neuroscience. During my postdoc, I came back to health again. So during my postdoc, I worked with uh, Michael Irwin, who's a psychoneuroimmunologist. Um, and here I did something kind of pretty different than what I did before. I actually uh, ran a pretty involved study where we injected people with um, an agent that triggers an inflammatory response um, to look at how that inflammatory response affects people emotionally and affects people socially um, and also what's going on neurally as a function of that. Um, and then after that got a job, got a job as an assistant professor at UCLA where I've been growing my own lab. I'm now an associate professor there 
And this is my, I think, seventh year as a professor. Yes. So I guess I have two main thoughts about differences between males and females when it comes to academics. Um, you know, when I was in graduate school, I never thought about gender differences in how I was treated versus how anyone else was treated. It wasn't until I became an assistant professor that I feel like I started to notice things. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, it was subtle things like, you know, I felt like when a male colleague presented on my data, they didn't get as many questions. When I presented on my data, there were a lot more questions. And I don't mean questions of clarity, questions to clarify. I mean, like, doubtful questions, like, I don't believe what you're saying, those kinds of questions. Um, and I've spoken with other, you know, female colleagues who've said the same thing. You know, they give the exact same lecture to a class of students that uh, her husband gives, and she finds that she gets, you know, a lot more pushback than her husband gets. Um, so there's things like that. There's also, you know, also sort of just social networking things. Um, you know, I noticed that uh, Matt who's a male and my husband, um, that, you know, he talks to other males. I talk to other females, the males that he talks to, because I guess they're males, they tend to be in more powerful positions. It's oftentimes males who are department chairs. So it's him that's talking about, you know, jobs and people moving and sort of orchestrating things. Um, so he's the one who's sort of networking and, you know, pushing for positions in different places. Um, so, so that's one difference. A another thing that I've noticed, and this I think I've seen more in my students, is that it almost seems like the way that science is done um, is more male-friendly. And, you know, this is my opinion, so some people may disagree with this, but I have a lot of female students. And, you know, when they go to conferences and they give talks and people ask them questions that are um, challenging, that are maybe mean-spirited, it makes them want to disengage. Um, I think sometimes for male students, they see this as an opportunity to engage, to fight back. It's sort of like it's fun to argue. Uh, you know, I'll watch two males fight it out over some scientific question and think, oh my God, they're never going to speak to each other again. And meanwhile, they're having a really fun time. So there's something, I think, accepted away about, I think there's something accepted about the way science happens that's kind of a bit more male-oriented than female-oriented, um, just in terms of the confrontational aspect of it. Um, the last thing, the last thought that comes to mind is, you know, I've often wondered if um, females are less interested, or at least some females are less interested in self-promoting. Um, that there's maybe something uncomfortable about that, or that they're just less interested, that it's not as important to them to, you know, get their message out, to be heard by a lot of people. Um, and that's certainly something that I've dealt with myself. So I like to do my science. I like to discover things. Um, I like for other people to know about it, but do I want to go out and have speaking gigs all the time and get in front of audiences? Um, I think there's something that, that makes me more uncomfortable about that. So. 
Mm-hmm. And I don't know if that's a me thing or if that's a female thing. Me and female are confounded, so I can't really pull those two things apart. That's a good question. So where do I see my work going in the next five years? Um, you know, One direction that I, we're continuing to pursue is exploring the positive side of social experience, like I've mentioned before. Um, where you know we have a project going on right now, which I didn't mention, where we're looking at experiences of gratitude and how those experiences might contribute to better health. Um, so, moving into that, a second area of research <clears throat> that does have more applied practical benefits is um, using some of the stuff that we've been learning on the neural correlates of social experience to try to better understand these links between social relationships and health. Um, so, like I said before, there are these really strong relationships, but we don't really know why. Um, and part of what I would like to see happen is for some of our work to have implications for improving health by strengthening people's relationships. You know, with brain data, you can't say anything, sorry, with neuroimaging data, you can't say anything causal. Um, you know, but when you combine a whole bunch of research together, so you have neuroimaging data combined with animal research where you can actually go in and lesion brain regions and look at the consequences, combined with human patient data where people are missing parts of the brain and you can look at the social consequences, to the extent that all those pieces of data line up, I think there is good reason to think that it's these, you know, that you can make some causal statements. <laughs>